Welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. Live your greatest life in your greatest body. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I am your host, Ben Pekulski. Today, we're going to dive into something that's been a focus of mine for a large part for five to six years, this well-known concept of ketogenic dieting, and maybe more accurately, how to perform really, really well on a ketogenic diet. So um, for most of you that don't know, I don't advocate myself as a ketogenic dieter. I don't promote myself as someone who does a ketogenic diet, but I'd say I'm in a ketogenic diet about 90% of the time. I really believe for overall health benefits and longevity, a ketogenic diet is probably something that you want to have in your tool belt. And I don't think it's something that I'm um, dogmatic about. And I don't say that, uh, you know, I only eat keto because I don't. If I feel like I need some carbohydrates, if I feel like I want some berries, if I train really hard, I add some carbohydrates in. My objective is performance. My objective is body composition. My objective is longevity and feeling great and mentally having my brain working all the time, which is why I think a ketogenic diet is extremely useful as a tool. Now, so today's guest, Dr. Ryan Lowry, joins me. I've known Ryan for probably about the same amount of time that I've been studying this ketogenic diet, and Ryan's been diving in deep. He is the owner of ketogenic.com and uh, absolutely one of the world's authorities on ketogenic dieting. And today we're going to talk everything about ketogenic dieting and performance. How should you be training? How should you be eating? Are there any special considerations around ketogenic dieting and how you need to adjust your training to fit ketogenic dieting? So Ryan's been doing this stuff for a long time, first working in the lab at the University of Tampa. Now, having graduated there, he's actually opened his own business called Aspie, which is here in Tampa, which is Applied Sciences and Performance Institute. Um, Ryan is an absolutely brilliant guy with tons of great information and great insights around how to optimize your body composition, how to optimize your training while on a ketogenic diet. So if you're somebody who's never tried a ketogenic diet, some of the things you're going to experience are absolutely improved cognitive performance. That's one that no one's going to refute. Um, some people will argue about the health benefits. Nobody will argue about the inflammatory benefits, so bringing down your inflammation, improving your insulin sensitivity, um, and m very likely improving your body composition. So there's obviously some um, mistakes in the ketogenic community where people just arbitrarily eat fat and they think they don't have to count calories. That's not the reality. We definitely need to pay attention to how many calories are going in. Uh, but for the most part, if you're following a ketogenic diet, your body will be more apt to use fat for fuel. You'll have less cravings. You'll have more control over your appetite. And that may be the biggest advantage a ketogenic diet offers to average people and people looking to optimize performance. But what you're going to hear today is a lot of the research regarding how a ketogenic diet actually adapts your body to train at a higher level for a longer period of time and remain as using fat as your primary source of fuel, which is a big uh, benefit 
So if I'm trading at a really high level and I'm not ketogenically adapted, my body will use carbohydrates for fuel. And that's okay, but if I run out of carbohydrates, I really tend to get tired and, and fatigue quickly. So Ryan tells us a lot about this resistance to fatigue that exists in a carbohydrate diet and in a ketogenic diet. He also talks to us about what a targeted ketogenic diet is, which is actually the inclusion of some carbohydrates around a workout and how that may be the best opportunity to drive performance and muscle growth on a ketogenic diet. So I hope you guys love this conversation with Dr. Ryan. He came into the studio here today to talk to me uh, about everything to do with optimizing keto. Um, if you guys don't already know, Dr. or Danny Vega and I, not Dr., just Danny Vega, and I are going to be launching a ketogenic muscle building program really, really soon where him and I have teamed up uh, to do a extensive workout and uh, ketogenic training program um, that we actually did together, trained together. Danny put on an obscene amount of muscle, looked absolutely ridiculous. Um, and we were just looking for all the ways that people make mistakes, all the ways that we mess up and how we can help you correct them. So we get tons of people out there who want to follow a ketogenic diet, but very few people who actually know how to do it correctly while pushing performance. So we went through it, pushed hard ourselves and found the best way to start to compensate, to start to, to optimize a ketogenic diet, found some really unique things. And that's coming at you very, very soon on muscleintelligence.com, which I know you guys are waiting for. It's coming. It's done. We're just waiting for all the finishing touches, and I hope you guys are absolutely going to love it. But in the meantime, enjoy the episode with Dr. Ryan Lowry on optimizing a ketogenic diet for performance. Have a great day. Well, if I know that I can use carbs for fuel, but then I take carbs out, and I don't have carbs for a day or two or 12 hours, and I know my body's using fat because I feel great, my energy's great, my body fat is, is visually going down, doesn't that seem like all I really need? Or is there actually a benefit in always being in um, this ketogenic state and never consuming carbohydrate or seldom consume? I don't say never, because we know that we probably now know that there's value in consuming carbohydrates sometime. But like, what's the real answer, man? Right. And I, I think like at the end of the day, like what I'll say is I think it's metabolic optimization. Like at the end of the day, no matter what approach you're taking, it's to optimize metabolism. I think most people can achieve that with a carb conscious, low carbohydrate, potentially ketogenic approach. But to your point, do you need to be in a state of ketosis 24-7, 365 to get that? I don't think so. So what are the best ways to, in your experience, in your um, research, to um, create a ketogenic state? So, you know, is it I just have to remove carbohydrates from my diet? Is that I have to have some type of exercise? Is that I have to create a parasympathetic environment? What are like the, the key components to optimizing a fat burning environment? Yeah, because there's multiple ways to enter ketosis, sure. right? Fasting, um, very low carbohydrate dieting, uh, eating copious amounts of fat, minimizing carbohydrate intake, exercise induced ketosis. Um, I think it's a combination of being carb conscious, so keeping your carbohydrates below a certain threshold. Exercise is certainly one of those things. I think where most people go wrong on a ketogenic diet is they don't exercise. They just think, oh, it's just nutrition. I'm just going to eat loads of fat and minimize my carbohydrates and I'll be fine. And that's where they miss the ball. They miss sure. the point. They're hit plateaus. They're like, what am I doing wrong? They're eating 18,000 calories worth of fat. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no wonder why you're not seeing results. Yeah. So. Even in a caloric deficit, I find, which is, you know, goes against what most scientists would say. I see people in a caloric, a slight caloric deficit 
not losing body fat. Right. I'm like, okay, why is that? So the one question that comes up for me going down this path that I like to talk about is, is there anybody or, or anything that you're aware of that's uh, quantifying the um, contribution of the autonomic nervous system when it comes to ketosis? So sympathetic, we know it's going to be more of a, a state dependent on carbohydrate breaking down, um, you know, muscle breaking down fat even, uh, versus parasympathetic being potentially this rest and digest phase. Um, is there any quantification there on how that's um, impacting ketosis? Like I'm the sure. levels of cortisol? Yeah, there has to be. Yeah. Um, one of the things we know is that, obviously we know cortisol spiked in the morning. Yep. If people get out of bed and they immediately test their ketones, no matter what, you'll see it's low. Yeah. Cortisol's blunting that response. Sure. So there certainly is a response. I guarantee you if people were looking throughout the day, you'd see fluctuations kind of lining up with that sympathetic mm -hmm. parasympathetic activity, but we, no one's looked at that. Because that, that, that comes to mind when I think of, you know, one of the best levers to pull to create metabolic flexibility. Like if I want to get into a state where my body's not dependent on, you know, breaking down muscle tissue and, and, and getting an influx of cortisol, I want to be in a parasympathetic state so that my body is in this rest and digest state and perhaps more likely to use fat for fuel, right? So that's interesting. That's why I asked you that question. Like, what do we know that's going like, so I'm new to ketogenic. I got to exercise and, and what type of exercise? Is that something that, he, that you're studying on like mm. duration and volume and, and intensity? Like, is there anybody looking at the energy system implications of training in ketosis? Yes. Um, so for the first part, I think high intensity interval training, stuff that you're doing all the time, like anything that's depleting muscle glycogen stores is going to be beneficial. Okay. So one of the things we looked at in our lab is like Wingates. Yep. So uh, you look at people who are doing Wingates, say, daily. Uh, they're able to adapt faster than people who are just doing like steady state cardio. Adapt to ketosis? Adapt to ketosis okay. faster. Are you guys measuring cortisol in that study at all? We didn't. Yeah. We should have, but we didn't. Um, now, as far as what types of exercises, so we just got done with a study. This was with Jordan Joy. Mm -hmm. um, and so we did a study where we basically looked at a targeted ketogenic diet versus like just a standard ketogenic diet versus a carbohydrate-based diet. Calories matched, protein matched, whole shebang. How many people? 50 wow. men and women, yeah. um, 50 men and women. And so one of the things we looked at was Wingate, like power performance. On a ketogenic diet, you saw that uh, on the first Wingate bout, their power was decreased. Even if they were adapted, their power was low. However, their fatigue resistance was a lot higher. When they started yeah. to do it seven, eight, nine, they were crushing it while everyone else was starting to fade off. The targeted ketogenic diet approach still had that fatigue resistance, but also didn't have that decrease in peak power on, on Wingate oh, really? 1. Very interesting. So that, that's what I tell everybody about yeah. the benefit I see from ketogenic dieting is my ability to produce power is high mm -hmm. and my resistance to fatigue is crazy. Right. Um, and my perceived, this may be a different result though, my perceived effort is lower. Like it doesn't feel like I'm working as hard. Yep. I think that's maybe a combination of being ketosis and also being very aware of my breathing and very aware of my parasympathetic state. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, I have to thank you for introducing me to Melthippi and, and Bateco. Because I remember you came back from the Quest Lab out in mm -hmm. California and you said, hey man, are we doing Melthippi? And I was like, you're doing what? <laughs> um, and ever since then, I've been diving so deep into that. I've had Patrick McKeon on the podcast twice. Um, and uh, he's coming out here to teach a course in August, actually. 
Um, so that's gonna be super exciting. So I'm, you know, it's it's a it's a high level course. I'm, I'm breathing optimization and breathing for performance. Um, but I've been diving into that so hard, man. So thank you for that. Of course, man. That's yeah. that stuff's huge. And I think the other piece to that is lactate clearance is a lot higher. So I think a lot of times people miss on keto, on keto yeah. because the transporters that clear BHB are the same transporters that clear lactate. So if you're in a state of ketosis, or like you're on a ketogenic diet, you're increasing the number of transporters that ultimately facilitate BHB being taken up into the cell. Those same transporters also take up and clear lactate. Wouldn't there be less of a lactate production as well? Correct. So one thing that comes to mind for me is we know that in a glycolytic state or in training in a glycolytic pathway, lactate is going to be produced in abundance. Now, what if we get to the point where we're getting doing too much uh, glycolytic training. So we're getting to the point where the, gly where the glycogen is depleted. Mm -hmm. Now, what are we looking at happening there? So um, what does the body begin to do? How is that affecting us? We know that cortisol is gonna be increased. Right. So it, what, what's happening? So there's ways that when you're in a state of ketosis, you, you can produce glycogen, right? Okay. Um, Immediately, like instantaneously with exercise? Well, if you look at, so Dr. Jeff Volek did a study and people who are adapted to a ketogenic diet, if you look at them compared to people who have carbohydrates, and these are people who have been on a ketogenic diet for 10, 11, 12 months, like they're really adapted. Right. Their glycogen stores are no different than people who are eating carbohydrates. And their rate of compensation following an exercise bout. So they basically took these individuals, had them run, and then obviously they both depleted their glycogen. And then they gave the ketogenic dieting group a fat shake, like literally just like probably 5% carbohydrates. And they gave the other group like a full carbohydrate shake. Both of them replenished their glycogen to the same degree an hour, two hours later. So that's interesting to me. Has, have you explored the thought then that maybe ketogenic adaptations are more beneficial acutely? So I see that as being a benefit um, to performance long-term, but is that maybe a detriment to body composition enhancement long-term, right? Because like, I Can want you... to have lower glycogen for body composition potentially, right? right. So performance, yeah, my body's adapting to this long-term thing, like great, now I can train hard. But acutely, like I think I'd like to have lower glycogen so that my body may be more apt to, you know, get this AMPK signal that says, hey, let's let's burn some more fat. Right. And it could be one of the things that we know is that fat oxidation rates, like if you look at fat oxidation rates, typically with someone who's consuming like carbohydrate, a carbohydrate based metabolism, they're peaking around. That's why like that low, that moderate intensity steady state cardio that people typically look at, like that's when fat oxidation rates are like at the highest when you when you see on like yeah. a treadmill or hey here hit this target zone well if you look at people who are in a state of ketosis fat oxidation rates are high there and they're also high at like near maximal like 80 90 like 95 percent your fat oxidation still elevated where in most people that would be very glycolytic sure so fat oxidation still peaked there i was talking about that today actually so who is that who is it that did that study that showed was it bolick as well bolick. that said you know, when you're ketogenically adapted, you're able to do a higher amount of, like your basically your anaerobic threshold goes yes. up. So you're staying in this aerobic state longer. Yep. Oh man, so interesting. So then maybe there is massive long-term performance benefits in provided you're in a ketogenic state long-term. Right. So right. short then, you guys are doing, you guys still have the metabolic cart. Are you still doing some tests with that? Yep, right. still doing it. What are some of the interesting findings you've had, like putting somebody in a ketogenic or on a, on a metabolic cart after a ketogenic state or being in a ketogenic state? Like, are you seeing anybody that's getting 
you know, super high amounts of fat oxidation. I know there's like people, you were saying like 90, 95% fat oxidation. I think I had that when I was prepping one, one time. Yeah. Silly high percentage. Yeah. <laughs> is, there, is there people out there like that? And what are the uh, adaptations that are causing that that you've seen? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we are seeing that. You see it in people who typically you look at them and they're extremely lean, um, regardless if they're on a ketogenic diet or not. And these people are on a ketogenic diet, their fat oxidation rates are beyond what you would normally see is like the, the limit is like like where you normally see is 0.7 these people are at like 0.68 0.67 consistently like over and over again so their fat oxidation rates are through the roof even at rest and during exercise and i think that's just basically them being adapted to being on a ketogenic diet fat oxidation enzymes are probably are processes are a lot higher Krebs cycles probably crank in mitochondrial biogenesis or like the formation of new mitochondria that happens the longer you're on a ketogenic diet um so all of these things are cranking and so it kind of puts them into like fat oxidation overdrive so talk to me about this um you know what's happening in the metabolic cart and how you're testing fat oxidation so the average listener has no idea what we're talking about yeah so basically we take people uh we hook them up and we can we look at the amount of co2 compared to the amount of o2 and that basically gives us their respiratory rate. So higher amount of CO2 is correlated with uh, higher Greater fat oxidation? Fat, fat oxidation. So, but that means a lower, what we call RER, resting energy ratio or respiratory yep. exchange ratio. Um, and so you're looking at about 0.7 means you're almost burning entirely fat. 1.0 means you're burning almost entirely carbohydrates. Most people fall somewhere in the middle, maybe 0 0.85, 0 0.9. People on a ketogenic diet, you're seeing towards like the 0.7 and sometimes like we said even below that where they're just their fat oxidations beyond what we would normally see have you drawn any correlations between uh respiration rate and uh rate of co2 excretion like what are the what yeah. are the things that we're correlating so you know we get people to come on the talk on the, on the podcast and talk a little bit about uh, hey when your respiration rate is lower say let's say you know seven to ten breaths per minute maybe that's correlated with a more parasympathetic state maybe that's correlated with more fat oxidation have you seen that we have um and it's something that it's difficult to control in research right mm -hmm. so you you have people coming in and you have to try and control their breath rate um but it's difficult but we do tend to see exactly what you're talking about it's one of the challenges of like doing so research. let's say we if we tested 50 people and some of them had a respiration rate of 17 to 19 breaths per minute, and some of them had a respiration rate of seven to nine breaths per minute. Would we across the board, in your belief or your experience, see a greater fat oxidation in people who are breathing at the lower respiration rate? Yes, Yeah. I think we would. Interesting, so there's something to be said there, right? So for yeah. people out there who aren't considering the breath rate as, yeah. hey, maybe this is a great way to start tapping into some fat loss, because I mean, this is what I see, man, is like, if I'm conscious of being more parasympathetic, I can I have to be less aware of doing the things necessary that most people have to do to lose fat. Mm -hmm. If I end up being more sympathetic, which is often the case of being stressed and overtraining and doing life, um, then sometimes it's harder to lose fat. You know, when I was on a ketogenic diet, I could eat a lot of fat and wake up in the morning and look leaner. And, uh, and I would always be testing my respiration rate. I would always be aware of my sleep. Uh, and I would notice it's improved like my body composition has improved uh super interesting man um talk to me about what you guys are um seeing around any correlations with sleep with the ketogenic diet so you know i know a lot of people who have a significant hard time sleeping mm. is there some impairment with carbohydrates uh the lack of carbohydrate on the ketogenic diet in people's sleep 
So some people tend to notice like when they're just starting during the adaptation phase, mm -hmm. like when they're just getting started on a ketogenic diet, start like some problems with sleeping. But in actuality, when we're like looking at like measurable results, we tend to see that people might, even though they might be sleeping less, the quality of their sleep is actually a lot higher, um, which is really interesting. Like they're not being as disrupted during their sleep. They're not having problems. So that to me, and it has to do with a lot of mechanisms that are going on with things like GABA and GABA production right. and things like do, that. Are you familiar with how that works? I, I'm very curious how keto is affecting everything, right? Is, is keto affecting glutamate and GABA? Yeah, for sure. Um, it is. And, and Dr. Dom's done a lot of research kind of looking into that realm from a epilepsy Navy SEAL component. Oh, yeah. But um, but ultimately, it has an effect on, on sleep. And mm -hmm. so that's why we're seeing these people who are potentially sleeping less, but getting higher quality of sleep because it's affecting those pathways. So in a positive way. Yes. Super interesting. So we know that carbohydrates are, are one of our body's mechanisms of dealing with stress and cortisol. So we have some, some very bright doctors out there suggesting that if you're someone who's very sympathetic, if you're someone that's stressed, going off carbohydrates may be a bad thing because that's one of our mechanisms of, of modulating cortisol. Mm -hmm. Have you seen any um, implications in how a ketogenic fat adapted diet will um, maybe make some type of adjustments to allow you to help modulate stress and cortisol, or is it? You know? Yeah, I think I think a lot with various different hormones, yeah. like like cortisol. We're seeing obviously a ton of inflammatory markers, which likely could indirectly contribute to sure. cortisol production. Yeah. But one of the so things we, going down or going up? It's going down. Okay. So one of the things we know about being in a state of ketosis, ketones themselves are anti-inflammatory. Yep. Um, we've done studies looking at creatine kinase. Yep. So it's one. It's a marker. So in people who have Crohn's, for instance, we did a case study in an individual who had Crohn's. The creatine kinase, which again is a marker of, of inflammation, uh, the average range is from like zero to 4.5. This individual is at 54 wow. um, Crohn's. After being on a ketogenic diet and like walking a little bit per day, they were down to like 4.3 within three months. So extremely anti-inflammatory. There's a whole bunch of mechanisms that we could go off on, but sure. I think ketones themselves, the fact that they're in anti-inflammatory, that contributes to the overall hormonal cascade of what's going on with cortisol, obviously testosterone, insulin, all of right. these things. So the big thing that I want to get out of today is how people should be training on a ketogenic mm. diet. So you talked a little bit about this reality that maybe it's okay to stay in that glycolytic pathway a little bit more. Maybe when you're adapted to a ketogenic diet, you can train a little bit harder and not actually be worried about muscle breakdown or excess cortisol. Mm. So how, from your experience, do you train or do you advise people to train um, who are either just getting into a ketogenic diet, which is one scenario, versus someone who's who's significantly deep into an adapted phase. Right. Um, so for me, what I recommend to people is when they're just getting started, like I would rather shorten the amount of time for the adaptation. So I would go hard during that adaptation phase. Like say you're just starting a ketogenic diet. That's when I would start doing high-intensity interval training. Is it going to be brutal at first? Sure, like because you're depleting glycogen stores. You haven't fully switched over to primarily using fat as a fuel source. But I'd rather shorten that window than extend it to like one to two weeks. So I would do hot, like higher reps, very glycogen-depleting exercises, high-intensity interval training, try and deplete glycogen to to like get past that point sure. first. That would be my recommendation. And then ultimately after that, it depends on the goal. Like, are you trying to build muscle? Are you trying to lose fat? Just trying to maintain- Let's say we're trying to build muscle. 
Well, there's a couple different ways. You could do a targeted ketogenic diet approach, um, which it I think seems to be a great solution. Right. So yeah. th that would be anywhere from 20, and we saw, depending upon the carbohydrate source, 20 upwards of 50 grams of carbohydrates around your workout. And just that one administration. Right. Yeah. In addition to what you're normally eating. So it's like, say you're eating, and I hate to use ratios, but I think people resonate with that more. But like, say you're eating 5% of your calories as carbohydrates, then in, on top of that, you're having an extra additional 20 to 50 grams okay. of carbohydrates. Intra or post? Uh, before. Pre. Before workout. Pre. The reason it's pre as well is because uh, one of the things you know is when you start working out, all of those uh, hormones that are going on are going to blunt that insulin response. Yeah. So you like literally you can test people after that and they're still in ketosis. Sure. Sure, your body will burn through it. Right. Super interesting. Um, is there any research or any what's your belief around um, what duration maybe a set should be like should you know obviously first 10 seconds we're looking cp splitting then we're looking at you know anaerobic a lactic then we're going into lactic should we be attempting to stay into in the uh and the a lactic phases or should we be uh, does it matter if we start pushing into long duration uh high intensity exercise of the lactate system glycolytic lactic system yeah i think you can i think you can push that that boundary and the reason is i think it's kind of like the way I look at it is like repetitive sprints is almost like repetitive sets. Like if people are doing sets where they're only resting 30, 60, 90 seconds, it's almost as if they're going into that repetitive sprint nature. So mm -hmm. yeah, that first set might be brutal um, where they might not have as much power based on some of the research we, we did, but the fatigue resistance, like later on, I've noticed like when I'm, when I'm on a ketogenic diet, I'm deep in ketosis. I'm looking at this and I'm like, wow, I could be exercising an hour in and I'm like, I'm not, I'm just right. like, I could, I could go for another two hours. Yeah. Do you still find you're getting a lactate feeling? Like you're still getting burn? It depends. Um, it depends. So if I do a targeted ketogenic diet approach, yes, yeah. I do that get it. Um, but otherwise I get, so, my clearance is so fast. I get no burning, which is right. a good thing and a bad thing, right? Like some people correlate like, oh, if I'm not getting a burn, I'm not building muscle. Well, I view it as... I'm just not going to get the signal to shut down my muscle. Like right. I, I can keep going and going and going. And I realize like my output and my strength is tremendous. Mm -hmm. And my, you know, what I think I notice is my ability to retain muscle is almost too good. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to be big mm -hmm. and this sounds silly, but like I'm training significantly less and not really losing any muscle. At least a little bit, but mostly the losing of muscle comes when I fast, not when I'm in ketosis. If I eat somewhat consistent on a ketogenic diet, I don't lose any muscle, which is super interesting. Um, yeah, well, the one thing I noticed on a ketogenic diet, and Danny and I both noticed this, is we both did a, a targeted ketogenic diet um, because he came to train with me. Our, our volume, I don't say our, I would say our volume is particularly high. What we did do is we really kept the rest periods a little bit longer. So our rest periods mm -hmm. were somewhere between three and five minutes even. And we kept the loads really heavy. Um, but we noticed was toward the end of the workout, the output like dropped. Mm -hmm. So the fatigue resistance was there. Like we were doing a lot of sets. So fatigue resistance was there, but we did notice that we became a little more exhausted. And if we didn't put that carbohydrate in, we were doing an intro workout and some a little bit after, um, our ability to recover for the next workout was slightly impeded. So as soon as we started introducing a little bit of carbohydrate, you know, Danny and I both experimented with intra, post, and not during, but then maybe before bed. 
and, and I don't think we saw much of a difference between the different time administrations. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on that? And, and if there would be a time, it'd be better than the others. What what type of carbs were you having? Um, so intra workout, we're using you can like okay. so like kind of a slow um, slow burning cornstarch. Um, before bed, I think both of us were using like sweet potatoes. Okay. Yeah. One of the things we noticed in our study, so we compared two different carbohydrate sources. So one was like a pea starch and one was like maltodextrin. Yeah. Um, and based on the dosage, uh, like obviously, so people who were having 30 grams of pea starch, almost 80% were able to stay in ketosis, measurable ketones. Because it's lower insulin response. Exactly. Compared to maltodextrin where there's only like 20% that would sure. stay in. So I think it depends on the carbohydrate source. So you'd want a lower insulin response. Want a lower insulin response. And it depends on the type of workout. Like you guys were going heavy, but you guys were mm -hmm. doing probably more volume than a lot of people that were out. Sure. Yeah, sure. a lot of volume. So you're, and we're you're a lot burning better at contracting muscle than most people are. Exactly. So you're using that very, very quickly, mm -hmm. which is good. Very interesting. Yeah. So because we were training five days a week, we did notice that there, the, the weeks that we didn't do the carbohydrate, the performance just wasn't there. And the overall um, enthusiasm for the workout was diminished, right? As soon as we put that back in, it's like, man, I feel amazing today. I want to keep going to work harder. I want to lift heavy. Right. I feel great. So this is why we thought it would be really interesting to put out a ketogenic program because like one, he's, you know, the keto master right. and I'm very fascinated with keto. I'm in keto 90% of the time in my life. Um, and yet still training hard. And we're trying to find these little intricacies that exist and, and go like, well, how do we optimize the state for people? Because I don't know if there's anybody out there doing a really good job um, actually right. teaching people intelligent ways to, to go about actually building muscle, losing fat on a ketogenic diet. And I think it's important because I think so often we talk about ketogenic diet from like, oh, it's just eat, eat fat, lower your carbohydrates. And very people focus on the exercise component. Mm -hmm. But there are so many people not only people that are trying to build muscle, but just trying to optimize their body composition. And at the end of the day, in order to do that, you're going to effectively have to train. And no one's really talking about how do you do that in combination with like a well-formulated ketogenic diet. Right. And just this idea of like, you need to ask your body for a greater uh, energy output, right? Mm -hmm. You need to say, hey, muscle, I need, I need to put some demand on you. Right. And when you challenge the demand of the muscle, they're consuming more calories, producing more ATP, and that happens kind of perpetually, especially when you do it over time. And that was the idea here is like, how can we improve the contractile efficiency of the muscle? How can we really challenge the energy systems in the body to say, hey, like even at rest, I need you burning more calories. And, and the response, that, I mean, I'm sure, I think you saw some of the pictures Danny had. Unbelievable. Like, it's crazy how much muscle he put on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was training hard, but like it, was, it wasn't even hard. It was just the specificity of the movement that made him so much better. And like the amount of muscle he put on was crazy. Uh, and it's such a cool little thing to have in your back pocket. So now he's on to like doing jujitsu and doing other stuff. He's like, oh, well, maybe this year we'll do another muscle building thing. So maybe for 12 weeks before the Olympia again this year, we'll do a little, uh, you know, 12 week transformation, put on a bunch of muscle again, because you know it's right there. Right. You know, it's in your, your back pocket. I know how to do it. We can put it back on. So it's super cool. Um, the one thing that I'm still not really clear on that I, I'm not sure if it's something you're an expert on, but I really, that, that really kind of um, my brain sticks on is this, this cortisol regulation. Like they're, you know, we said when we were a little more resistant to cortisol, a little more resilient to cortisol. Um, but I think there still has to be something in there that cortisol is in some way impacting uh, ketosis in a way. I don't know. Who would you recommend that I talk to or any studies you see that are people actually looking at the effects of cortisol and ketosis? It's a great question. Because um, we, we live in, the reason this comes up yeah. is because the biggest thing I see in all of my online clients is, well, not the biggest things, but one of the biggest things 
is you're resistant to results when you're mm. constantly sympathetic, right? So you're, sure, you're in a sympathetic right. state, your cortisol is elevated, your adrenaline is elevated, you're not sleeping well, you're always stressed out. No matter what I give you, you don't change. So in a ketogenic diet, knowing now that I don't have that lever, because I, I view carbohydrates when I'm, when I'm training an average person as a lever mm. in the right okay. dosages at the right time to help modulate cortisol. So I'm like, hey, I know that after work, you're stressed, you're having a hard time going to sleep. I'm going to give you 30 to 40 grams of carbohydrate, knowing that's going to bring down your, your cortisol, help you sleep at the right times. When I don't have that in a ketogenic diet, I'm very curious what I do. Like, I don't want someone's um, glutamate running fast, so that, and then they have no GABA, then they're not going to sleep, mm -hmm. um, because I know that's going to inhibit results in fat loss. So I'm very curious how I can begin to use a ketogenic diet intelligently while still modulating the sympathetic nervous system and, and uh, cortisol because we just live in such a stressed society the blue lights blaring in our eyes right now oh, is, yeah. you know that's example number one right yeah so what do you think it's interesting and i think uh i think you're spot on one i don't think we know enough about it i think to a targeted approach might be a way to modulate that uh in some capacity and three it's one of the reasons why like I, lo I love what you talk about. It's not just a diet. It's like, how do you incorporate in other lifestyle factors in this, right? Like you need to be able to block blue light. You need to be able to uh, meditate and come up with some of these other aspects, no matter what you're doing. If you're on any diet or any intervention, whatever you're doing, if you're not taking care of some of those other aspects, if you're not training, if you're not focusing on sure. relationship, like all of those things play an impact and you'll never get to see the results that you're trying to get if you don't focus on those aspects. Mm -hmm. But you're, I think you're spot on. I, don't, I think we need to look into it more. Very, very interesting, man. Um, now, necessity of aerobic training uh, on ketogenic diet. Is this, mm -hmm. I know you're an advocate of high intensity, as am I. I think there's certainly benefit. To be honest, I am an advocate of kind of, I've worked, historically have been an advocate of kind of minimal effective dose of the high intensity stuff because right. I know on top of all of these other uh, stresses in life. This is just putting another stress. And we, yes. we look at this general adaptation response, right? So every, any, every type of stress is giving you this typical general adaptation response. We're getting cortisol, we're getting adrenaline, and, and it's kind of a dose dependent thing. So the more that I have, the more stresses that I have, the more that I'm getting this, you know, this peak of stress. Mm -hmm. So um, adding aerobic training on top of that in a uh, intelligent way, maybe is a way to start modulating the autonomic nervous system that's something that you are familiar with, you're an advocate of, what's your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, I think in the right dose, I think it comes down to the dose, like you said, you don't wanna add a stressor on top of what you're already trying to, when you already have high amounts of stress. Right. I think uh, as long as it's separated, like we've done a lot of research where sure. if you do the long intensity steady state on a leg day, probably not mm, right, the best ideas. Sense. As long as it's separated from that, I think it's fine, but I'm, I'm in agreement with you. Like I think minimal effective dose versus like someone who's trying to stress out to get 90 minutes of cardio in um, versus like, hey, if I can get in 10 minutes of high intensity interval training and then go spend 80 minutes with my kids and wife and have a totally. have a better, like that's gonna de-stress me, I'd rather them do that than like 90 minutes on a, on a Stairmaster just because. What are some of the biggest mistakes people are making on a ketogenic diet? Not, not inclusive of training, but just like on a ketogenic diet, from what you see, what are the big mistakes? Electrolyte intake is probably one of the top. I How high are you going with sodium? Five grams. I probably have about five grams a day. 
which is way above the RDA. Um, but I, I also pair that with potassium, right? So I make sure I'm getting in ample, like I eat probably an avocado a day. Um, so I'm, make, I'm getting in ample amounts of potassium to support that. Right. Um, I think people aren't training. Um, I think lack of movement and exercise, I think, is one of the biggest. Like yeah. sitting, no matter what you're doing, you're going to be better off even just taking 15 minutes a day to walk uh, than you would just be sitting sure. down. Like even there's studies showing even a 15 and 20 minute walk after a meal can lower glucose levels. Like that's going to help anyone, let alone people who are on a ketogenic diet. I think that's a big one. I think forcing fat is another big one. I think people putting sticks of butter inside their coffee just because they think that's sure. what you need to do. It makes me bulletproof. <laughs> right. I think, I think that's something that I see people do so wrong. And to your point, like I look at with people on a ketogenic diet, I look at fat as sort of a lever as well. Like, cool. I make sure I'm, I'm hitting a threshold and keeping my carbohydrates t to a adequate amount. I'm getting in ample amounts of protein enough to sustain what I'm, what my goals are. And then if I'm hungry, cool. I bump up my fat intake. If I'm not cool, I don't need to have an extra amount. How much of protein? It depends on the, and well, that's actually another mistake I, th I see most people make. And believe it or not, I see most people not eating enough protein because fasting is so prevalent in the ketogenic dieting community that people are doing OMAD or like one meal a day. And especially females, I'm seeing people, but males as well, who are eating one meal a day and they're getting in 40 grams of protein in that meal. And you're, I'm like, they're like, my hair is falling out. I'm getting keto rash. I'm like, yeah, that's a sign of protein deficiency. Oh, uh, is that what that is? I don't that's, know what keto rash is. Keto, so like they're getting rashes on like the side, their the sides. Thing? It's a protein deficiency. It's, you're not getting, like, it's literally classic signs. People, people, their hair falling out. Those are all protein deficiencies. Your 40 grams a day isn't meant to sustain human function. And these people are probably the ones that are actually working out and having movement as yeah. well that are doing that. So that's a big one. So in regards to necessary amounts of protein, I think it varies by the individual. I think that the minimum, the absolute minimum you need to have is a gram per kilogram. Um, I think that is minimum for sustaining normal function and people to optimize what they're trying to accomplish. And talk to me about nose to tail. Like, Carnivore is becoming a big thing right now. Right. Um, and it's got a lot of strong points. I don't right. think it's flawless. I don't think anything's flawless. I think everything should be cyclical, right. my belief. But um, tell me about this idea of eating nose to tail. Is that how you eat? I agree. And I think I, I've done it. I've done carnivore. I, I've done it twice for a month. Uh, the first time I did it purely with muscle meat. Mm -hmm. uh, second time after I talked to Paul Saladino. Yeah. Uh, I went nose to tail and radical difference yeah. um, between both of them. So I do try. I try and incorporate liver. Um, like I know Danny makes like the the, 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 the patties. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I try and incorporate it in. Like I know you do a lot of bowls, like the egg and beef bowls. Yeah. So I, I've learned that from you. So I try and incorporate like I cut up the liver to to get it in there. It's not something I love. Like it's so, not something that's just like oh this is great. We'll but, see what they're doing now. Right? Like it's 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 almost sad. That nobody actually likes eating liver, so they're making like liver cubes, like frozen liver ice cubes, and just, and just swallowing it. Oh god! So the way I, I do, I get it in is, is off of um, U.S. Wellness Meats. I'll order like the liverwurst for the brown sugar. Uh -huh. It's great, and it, I mean, I make it into meatballs. I can make it into into burger patties. My kids love it. So then they're getting the heart, they're getting the kidneys, they're getting the liver, and, and like to give it to kids, I think is beautiful. And for those of yes. listeners that don't know, nose to tail is just eating the organs and eating the the collagen. 
eating all the connective tissue. I think collagen has been one addition to my diet that I think has maybe made the biggest difference to the way that I feel and my performance, mm-hmm. my recovery. And I actually believe now that uh, every human should be consuming collagen protein. I think it's going to have a big upswing. That's one of my kind of five nece- uh, necessities now that I'll have every day. And usually every time I consume uh, animal protein, I'll try to get at least you know one scoop, 20, 15, 20 grams of collagen with it. So you're getting that glycine to bounce out the glycine-methionine ratios. And I, I don't know how, what your thoughts are on that, but yeah. um, you know, I've, I've seen some pretty um, convincing research and, and just from my you know, own N is one research, seems pretty darn useful. I, I love it. And I, I've started incorporating in uh, bone meal as well. So wow. what's the benefit there? So kind of like to the whole nose to tail, yep. there's a lot of things inside of bone, calcium, and all these, like, it's a, obviously a different source of calcium than you would get in, via supplementation. And I tried to mix it in my, my, my kids like macaroni and cheese. So make homemade macaroni and cheese with like good healthy cheese. And I just tried to put some bone meal in there. <laughs> my son's like, daddy, why is macaroni and cheese crunchy? <laughs> Damn it. Like, dang, it didn't work. Oh man. But yeah, I try, I try and do that um, yeah. as well. Cause like, to your point, I think, like you said, everything's cyclical. I, I look at them as tools. They're all yeah. tools in a toolbox. I think there's a lot of people right now that are doing the carnivore approach and going to Wendy's and getting Baconators without the bun. And like, that's literally what they're having at every meal. And they're like, I'm carnivore. I'm like, you'd probably be better off like not eating carnivore and eating something else than like doing that I every single that meal. You brought that up. So yeah. my first uh, piece of advice to everyone when it comes to diet is quality over yes. everything. So I'd rather see people eat like homegrown vegetables and homegrown, I don't know, man, like you could live off, I think, like a mango tree if it's homegrown and have better optimized health than eating baconators. Right. Right. So quality over, I'm like you brought that up. So um, when it comes to meat, you know, so I even asked Paul Saladino about this on my podcast, ironically, I said, hey, Paul, if the quality of my meat is poor uh, and I can't get quality meat, should I just be eating you know, carbohydrates and, and uh, vegetables. He said, yes. Right? Interesting. Yes. That's a good. Yeah. So I was like, okay, at least he acknowledges the necessity of quality because I think anyone who to say no, like, Hey man, it's okay to go to McDonald's and eat a big Mac, just throw away the bun. I'm like, what really dude? Like, no. And I mean, even this, uh, this um, conversation around the poor quality dairy that people are consuming, mm. it's like, great. You're in ketogenic diet, but you're eating, cheesecake or something like from the worst quality dairy that just can't be good for me it's still you still have to consider okay there's the metabolic effect but then there's also the toxic effect of like putting in this burden of you know pesticides and toxins mm-hmm. and things that your body has to deal with somehow it's good burdening your liver it's burning all your, your organs it's so interesting and i'm glad you acknowledge that because uh, i think it's important for the listeners to know yes and i agree on the number one culprit that i see with people and i think dairy has a lot like good sources of dairy have a lot of benefits immunoglobulins like there's a lot of benefits to like a good quality source way for instance however i see the number one thing that causes most people to stall on a ketogenic diet is doing exactly what you said they're eating copious amounts of just cheese that isn't of good quality nature cheesecakes they're making all these things and there's they have a ton of dairy in their diet and they're stalling and they have no idea why they pull the dairy out and like all of a sudden it's just like, oh my gosh, like I didn't, I didn't realize what that was doing. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I see it all the time. I'll tell you, one of the biggest issues I ran into personally on a ketogenic diet was um, kind of like what you said about people only eating 40 grams of protein, eating one meal a day. So when I was dieting, well not dieting, but I was training last year with Danny for the, um, for the Olympia and doing our, our 
you know, transformation kind of thing. I wasn't really a transformation for me. It was kind of an experiment. And I would get probably 100 to 120 grams of protein at that one meal. Um, but what I noticed was my calories were so ridiculously low. Mm -hmm. So I found myself chasing fats. I was like, okay, so I got to get at least 2,000 calories, put up 100 calories. So I was like looking around my house for different sources of fat. And short of me drinking olive oil, which definitely happened, I was looking for like, I was like, okay, what can I get in here to get my calories up and actually get the ratios to balance out? So, you know, if I know I want to have a two to one ratio of calories, fat to, to protein, um, well, what do I do? So what is your thought around, so if I had just stopped and say I would have eaten, I don't know, 1500 calories, which is very low for me right. versus like literally like scavenging my house and looking through the cabinets and going, what can I eat that's fatty? So I don't eat any dairy. So I'm like, okay, what can I do that's an extra bit of fat? So it'd be like, okay, maybe I can have some nuts. Maybe I can have some avocado. Maybe I can have some olive oil, uh, or maybe you know, pork rinds or something. And I'm like, okay, what can I pull out here that's additional fat? And I just found myself looking for additional calories. Is it important that I take in this two to one ratio or this whatever X to Y ratio of fats to proteins? Or would I have been better off just stopping? And like, I was totally satiated. I didn't need any more food, but my brain goes, man, if I don't have, if I have too much protein, I'm gonna get a spike in, in insulin. I'm gonna be gluconeogenic and, you know, I don't know, maybe be kicked out of ketosis versus like chasing more fats. What do you think? Well, for someone like you, I don't think there's someone who's probably more in tune with their body than you. Like, I think I would, if I were satiated and I was like, cool, I would have, I'd stop and go, cool. All right. And then if I'm hungry next to the next day, if I was like, you know what, I'm hungry for breakfast, I listen to it and I'm like, cool, I'll have two meals a day. It's one of the best benefits that I, I tell people this all the time. I say, being in a state of ketosis, what I feel for most people, puts appetite back in your control. I think so many people are controlled by food these days where it's like they're hangry, they're looking, sure. they're in the closet. It's like, oh, well, here's and, just and another so many snack. people have a yeast overgrowth or a bacterial overgrowth yes. that's perpetuated by sugars. Yes, 100%. Yeah. And so I think being in a state of ketosis puts appetite back in your control in that essence. And so for me, I would I would look at that and go, cool. Like the, the ideal goal for most people is like I, in the beginning, a lot of times people have to track. They have to like see where they're at, see what's going on. But the freedom comes in not doing that. Like the freedom comes in like, cool, like I can totally. eat, I can I'm listen not. to my body, I'm intuitive, like I know when I'm hungry, I know when I'm not. Like that's mm. the freedom piece that like liberates so many people from being in that circle of being controlled by food. What are your primary sources of fat? So I don't eat dairy. What should be my primary sources of fat if you need your diet? Because is dairy a big source for you? Uh, it is. Yeah. Um, butter. Uh, yeah. grass-fed butter. I don't do any dairy. Um, I do ghee uh, as well. But avocados are a big, big source for me. Um, coconut oil is a big source for yeah. me. There's only so much coconut oil you can jam in. You know? I know. Like, short of taking teaspoons of coconut oil. <laughs> I literally was doing teaspoons of olive oil during my... Uh, right? I like olive oil. Though, right? <laughs> it's like a treat. I actually look for things to put olive oil on. If you get really good olive oil... Yeah, the good quality ones So are good. do you use the Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Company? There's a company called the Fresh Press Olive Oil Co. I'll give you my, my discount code. Yeah. It's amazing. Like every three months, they send you three bottles. And so this, this guy travels the world and um, you know goes to di the different sources or the different parts of the world that have fresh olives growing now. And he goes to the particular um, farms and like makes deals with the guy at Dang. the farms. And we get like within, I think it's within four weeks of harvest, 
who get it sent directly to our door. It's amazing, man. And you've never tasted olive oil like this. Like when I used to buy store-bought olive oil, I'm like, olive oil is gross. Yeah. I'm like, it's like the best thing. It's like, I look forward to going. We just ran out last night. I'm like, man, when's the next box coming? <laughs> when's that coming? That's <laughs> yeah, awesome. so short of, you know, drinking olive oil and, and coconut oil, what are my best sources of, is it just like you need to eat more fatty meats? Yeah, um, a lot of it's fatty sources of meat, like yeah. try and opt for ribeyes versus filets. So then how do I look at eating too much saturated fat? To go avocado oil. That's another one that I've started incorporating in. So the only thing I get is oil. I yeah. guess I just need to start drinking oil. Well, that and uh, I don't, to your other point, I don't think you necessarily need to be at a two-to-one. Um, and I think a lot of times people can thrive off of a one-to-one, uh, especially if their goal is building muscle. Yeah. Um, so now that's calories, right? Right. So it would be almost like for every 50 grams of fat I have, I have 100 grams of protein because that's about right. Calories. Right. Right. Okay. So um, that's that's another piece, but fattier cuts of meat. I think as long as you're pairing that with like I don't I don't think all of your fat should come from saturated fat. I think saturated fat shouldn't be demonized like it is, but you still need to keep it in context. Sure. Like getting ninety five percent of your fat from saturated fat is probably not a good idea, right. no matter what. So um, I think it's finding that balance of fitting those oils in. Maybe some nuts, macadamia nuts, um, Brazilian nuts, and fitting those in in combination with like fattier cuts of meat. Yeah. Um, tell me about vegetables. Do you eat vegetables? Mm, I do. A lot? Not as much as I used to. Um, at, the way I look at veg, like I look at vegetables and I, I understand the whole, they make a lot of a lot of good arguments on the carnivore side of like. They really do. But yeah. I also see there's arguments on the other side too. Correct. And like for me, I come from a habit of like I, I was playing baseball in college. And for me, it was like I used to drink three to four weight gainer shakes per day. So mm-hmm. like I was eating ridiculous amounts of calories, four or 5,000 calories per day. I can't eat that anymore because I'm not as active. Like sure. uh, stress, is, stress is a lot different. But at the same token, like for me, like I'm used to seeing a lot of food on my plate. So the minute, one of the biggest challenges for me for carnivore was like, cool, I see a piece of meat and I'm like, that, that's it. Where's like, the rest of it? Yeah, yeah, where's the rest of it? So like salads, like big salads, vegetables add for me uh, a sense of like, cool, there's more volume. So for me, that's greater satiety. So I'm preventing myself from eating 2,000 calories at a meal instead of 1,000 by incorporating in vegetables. Like, yeah. So I, I see I see the point of like fiber and the the argument against certain certain vegetables, but in the same token for me, I'd I'd rather people be satiated and be like, cool, I'm eating a big salad versus like, oh, if I'm gonna eat this, I have to eat four thousand calories, and the next thing you know, they're they're off the bandwagon. Totally. And yeah. so for me, having lived my life for twenty years, having to eat till failure, is <laughs> a very big switch. Yeah. Right. For the longest time, I couldn't get enough calories to sustain my weight. So for twenty years, so it's like constantly chasing food, and then now you're like, oh well, I'm just gonna eat that. So my my brain is still breaking that habit of like overeating food. I think I'm pretty good now, but for a while, right. you know, I've only been removed from bodybuilding for two years. Um, so it was hard. Who should fast? That's one question I have for you. Should everyone fast, or should is should people who have high amounts of stress avoid fasting? Or uh, what are your thoughts on it? I think some degree of fasting for everyone's probably a good idea. I think when people take it to extremes, that's when I start to get cautious, especially females. Like I see, because fem- females, like they're they can be hardcore and go, you know what, I'm going all in. Like I'm going to do this. And some guys will chicken, out, guys and girls, they'll chicken out and they'll go like, oh, I'm. They're 
eight hours in and they're like, I'm done with this. I'm just going to go eat. Mm -hmm. But if they're committed to it and all of a sudden they're two, three days deep, you do start to see some detriments in their hormones, fluctuations that probably aren't ideal. Um, so I think some sort of intermittent fasting for anyone, ketogenic diet or not, is probably a good idea. I don't think we should, we need to be in a state anymore where we're eating six, seven, eight meals per day. I think condensing the eating window, no matter who it is, if your goal is optimizing body composition, it's probably a good idea. Lane told me something about there was some study that was done that suggested, you know, after a contest or after a period of, of prolonged calorie restriction or fasting, um, your body actually develops an affinity to store more fat. You Correct. With that? Yep. Talk to me about that. Yeah. So you've been in such a calorie deficit for so long. And this is where I might have differing views on, on how to come out of like a contest or a diet. So think about it. You're, you're, you've been slowly going down. So say you started 3,000 calories. You're, you've been slowly decreasing the amount of calories that you've been eating and say maybe before your contest you're at 1000 calories that's how most people diet down for something their metabolism is now adapted to 1000 calories um, and so anything above that is likely storage so what happens is immediately people try and reverse diet out for 24 30 weeks or months going out and all of a sudden they're reverse dieting and like they're going 1250 1500 but their basal metabolic rate still stuck at 12 uh, at a thousand like it's adapted to what you had eaten for why so would long. it do that why wouldn't it adapt to 1250 to 1500 it slowly will it slowly will come back up like i i understand the metabolism will slowly come back up it won't stay at a thousand but during that time when you're increasing your you still slight spillage yeah for me what i would suggest is the goal is Coming out of a contest, that's why I think a ketogenic diet could be great because you're more prone to you're, – you're increasing fat oxidation when your body's more prone to storing fat. But for me, the goal would be how, how quickly can I get back to baseline, baseline meaning what I was doing before I started dieting without causing a ridiculous amount of spillover. So the question is would I rather gain five pounds of fat and get back quicker versus like – try and play that game of slowly mm -hmm. increasing over sure. so many weeks and then go, well, I might still gain five pounds of fat over that time. Like I'd rather get my metabolism back as quickly as so possible. So you're looking at like a five to 10 day massive excess, like getting yourself back up to 3000 calories. But, or even while, a couple weeks. While keeping weeks. Your, your activity really high. I Co think that's correct. the double whammy, right? Is, and I was guilty of that during my career. Is like you go from training two times a day with weights plus one cardio, you're training three times a day, eating, you know, for me, it was like, you know, 3,000, 2,500 calories. And, uh, and then I go from, you know, doing three workouts a day with that few calories, to eating 5,000 calories in one workout a day. Right. That's the recipe for disaster. But if you keep your workouts at three times a day, while you increase the calories back up, all of a sudden that's an anabolic state, your body's going to respond. And then you cut back the nutrient or you cut back the workouts while you steady up the nutrients. Exactly. Cause, and studies have shown this, like even after people diet for that long of time, Hormones are still impaired six, eight months afterwards mm -hmm. if you don't get that back up. Like testosterone's shot. Like if you if you diet for that long and you come out and you don't get back up, done. Like your yeah. hormones are all over the place. Yeah. That's one thing I saw that uh, for so many years of kind of abusing my body, I couldn't get my pituitary, pituitary to produce growth hormone. I just wouldn't do it. So like, what do you do? Like it's a growth hormone deficiency. That's just, even though, you know, in my age, it may not be necessary. It's still a part of human physiology. Right. So we're like, okay, what can we do, right? And, and so the thing that actually kicked it back up for me was a little bit of fasting. I think that's what worked is like, you know, do a couple of days of extended fast. It seemed to kick my, my uh, pituitary back up a little bit and it's been increasingly growing over time. Uh, but that's definitely reality, right? It's mm -hmm. like, you know that 
when your body's in caloric deficit for a long time, something's shutting down. And obviously I, I might've taken some exogenous hormones during my career, which might've impaired my pituitary's ability to function. So super interesting stuff, man. Yeah. Um, you've told me a little bit about uh, what you're doing right now with ketogenic.com. Tell our listeners what's going on and what they can find that's exciting from ketogenic.com. Yeah, so basically what we do is we have a website, ketogenic.com, and it's got a ton of just free information, articles, recipes, you name it. And the goal is how do you – there's a lot of noise out there, right? There's a lot of people who are talking about keto that some some know exactly what they're talking about. Others are just using it as a buzzword, and it's ending up everywhere. So how do you sift through that noise? And that's ultimately what we're trying to do is be the authoritative resource for people to come to to just get information. So like the last thing that I want is someone to embark on this journey and be like – oh, I fell off because this person said it's going to give me diabetes or cholesterol, and it's just something that they heard on, on the news. So one of the things we're trying to do is we're facilitating that conversation, providing resources, information, tools. We have a whole section on doctors, like literally a place to find doctors that support a ketogenic diet. Um, so that's what we're trying to do. And then also moving into a phase where how do we make things more accessible? And that's where I think this will really go mainstream is we've hit a point where we're getting there. I think we're starting to see keto become more and more. But at the end of the day, like I was just talking to my brother the other day, he's 350 pounds, he's overweight, um, and he's he's tried and tried, but he's like, you know what, I can't get that. Like, I can't find that. How do I get that? And so we're trying to put together a resource where you can find these things a lot easier and make it so it's something that people don't go, oh, I did that for a week. Oh, I tried that and it didn't work. Like, how do we make something that's sustainable? Very cool, man. And I know you guys are doing a great job doing all your research. You've got a great team around you. Um, and thank you for continuing to have integrity with the way you approach the business. Because obviously everyone needs to make the money. Everyone wants to help the world. Um, but doing it from a place of uh, integrity and actually wanting to help people is why we call you a friend, man. So thank you very much. Thanks, brother. I appreciate, appreciate you being it. here, man. Really. Absolutely. Thank Thanks for having me, man. Thanks, man. And that's a wrap, ladies and gents. Thank you very much for tuning into the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pukolsky. Uh, today's episode was about ketogenic dieting and performance. And everything Ryan talked about, I agree with. There's nothing that he said that is not accurate. He's very much research-based. Uh, he's very much basing his conversation on experience, on the data that exists. And I try to convey the same data to you guys. It seems like everything he talked about was extremely accurate, extremely applicable to you. So the big takeaways are maybe we can actually be performing at a high level on a ketogenic diet. Maybe we don't have to worry so much about minimizing the intensity. Maybe we can actually push hard once we're adapted. How to get adapted is another thing. The big thing that you guys know that I focus on is modulating stress. And if you can't become good at consciously improving your mental stress, improving the physical stress, the likelihood of ever building a physique is slim to none. The big takeaway, you got to move. You got to move. You got to get up. You got to be active. You got to walk. You got to train. You got to train hard. You got to be active and you got to eat well for your lifestyle. So I'm not dogmatic about eating ketogenic, nor am I dogmatic about eating carnivore, nor am I dogmatic about eating a vegan diet. I don't care what the diet style is. What I care about is it working for me and for my current goals. Is it working for my current goals in my current 
season of life. So if it's the summertime, I may be eating different than the wintertime and my travel schedule, like what's working for me right now to optimize my life. I want to feel great. I want to perform great. And I want to live a long and healthy, vigorous, rigorous life. I hope you do too. Uh, If you enjoyed the podcast, always please head over to iTunes, leave us a five-star review because you think we're awesome. And I think you're awesome too. Thank you so much for your time. I'm extremely grateful that you give me your ear, your attention, and your continuous support. You guys are absolutely amazing. The reviews I have on iTunes and on Instagram are always blowing my mind. Uh, Thank you guys for the shares. Thank you guys for sharing this podcast with at least one person you know that will love it as we continue to grow this mission of helping millions of people around the world to live their greatest life in a body they love. Have a great day. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.